Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Farah Jassat. And me, Daniel Ben-Koren. This week, we speak to Chris Hurst, the CEO of advertising agency Havas, about leadership. Daniel, he's written a book, hasn't he? Yep, his book is called No Bullshit Leadership, excuse my French. And it's his own practical guidelines for running a company. Obviously, Havas is one of the biggest advertising companies in the world. So Helen Lewis, who is a staff writer at The Atlantic, asked him about his own unique philosophy. We hope you enjoy listening. And just before we go to this week's episode, if you're interested in coming to any of the Intelligence Squared events that happen live in London, go on our website at intelligencesquared.com and we can offer you a special 20% discount. Just type in the promo code podcast at the checkout. Hello, I'm Helen Lewis, staff writer at The Atlantic, and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. Hello, Chris. Um, The book is kind of a blast against what you call the leadership industrial complex, right? So can you explain to us what that is? I think the leadership industrial complex is a very broad and loosely defined by me uh, group of organisations that I would include everything from at one end. Organisations were all in some ways familiar with, by the way. So at one end, that might be management consultants, some training organisations, uh, conferences, some conferences, off-site sessions that many of us will be familiar with, business schools, uh, dare I say it, books. And the, the, the common factor between these is that I think the leadership industrial complex has, in some instances, a vested interest. Uh, and in some instances, maybe a, 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 um, an accidental interest in making the subject of leadership seem really, really difficult. And certainly for those that make a lot of money out of the leadership business, I think it's definitely in their interests to make it sound really complicated because, of course, then they're the answer. Right. So you have this saying in the book that leadership is difficult but not complicated. Mm-hmm. So why, first of all, why is it so difficult? I think it's difficult because... Uh, leadership is, I, I think I probably have to take a little step back and, and talk about what I think leadership is mm-hmm. uh, first in order to be able to really do that question justice. So first of all, what is a leader? Um, well, my definition of a leader, a leader is anybody that has people they're responsible for, which is why I talk about everyday leaders. So that's a, that's a lot of, that's a very large part of our society. And what is leadership? Uh, Leadership for me is um, the getting of a group of people, and it's always people, from a defined point in the present Mm -hmm. to a different and clearly defined point in the future. So, So that's what I think leadership is. So leadership is about change. And the reason leadership is so difficult is because I think the defining of those two end points is often by the leadership industrial complex 
we're told that that's a very complicated thing to do. I'm saying that that isn't necessarily. What is very, very difficult is the getting between the two. And it's difficult because it involves action and execution and people and taking decisions and the high chance, if not inevitability, of failures along the way. Um, and those things are difficult both to Often it's difficult to do and take decisions, but often it can be very difficult emotionally and personally as well. Okay, so let's take a a step back and talk about how you came to write this book. Kind of whisk us through your CV then. What what is your interest, personal interest in this subject? Uh, So so the very short version of my my CV is I have worked in uh, creative advertising agencies for for most of my career. Latterly, I I have a slightly wider remit than that, but, but for the purposes of your question, advertising agencies. But I think that probably the most uh, relevant and specific uh, part is the the period where I really started to think about what leadership is and genuinely think about, therefore, what is it and how can it be done well and obviously how is it done badly. Mm -hmm. And my own personal journey along that uh, was that in about uh, when I was in my early 30s, so this is uh, about 2002, 2003, I was hired as part of a a kind of Young Turks management team, uh, five of us, and to, to go in and fix a broken business. Uh, and it was a you know it was the unfixable business within the industry. And we were hired, and within uh, about twelve months of the five of us, one had been fired, and most of the others had left and and gone on to subsequently fabulous fabulously successful careers elsewhere. And after six years, I was still there. I'd been passed over at least twice, I think, to be the CEO. Uh, And the business, frankly, was just as much of a dog as it had been at the start. So I could certainly no longer claim to be part of the solution. I'd become part of the problem. I mean, after six years, you haven't fixed it. That's that's the truth, right? So I was sitting there at that point. So now we're in about 2009 thinking, well, I think I've screwed my career. I mean, you know, I joined as this kind of part of this rock star team and now I'm just lost in this crappy agency what am i what am i going to do and then i got lucky honestly and again the short version of the story is i got lucky and i i persuaded my employer to pay for me to go to harvard for eight weeks and i went to do the advanced management program at harvard and there's a whole separate story about 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 that experience but the real relevant piece for this is not any great insight i learned about leadership at harvard i know i've just i've just knocked business school so i have the self-awareness and self-awareness to recognize that what it really gave me was it gave me space that at that point in my career it gave me space and it gave me space to reflect on myself and reflect on, you know, wh- wh- what I wanted to do next and all that kind of stuff. And I got lucky when I came back in that my new boss got promoted and I got put suddenly, pretty well unexpectedly, into the CEO role mm. of this still broken agency. And at that point, it was literally then that for the first time in my career, I thought to myself about what a leader really needs to do and what leadership really is. And the one thing I was sure about at that point, I wasn't sure about many things, but the one thing I was sure about is that I wasn't going to make the mistakes that I'd seen made by myself and others over the preceding six years. Mm -hmm. And I suppose really that was the start of my leadership journey. Which is quite, I mean, it is inspiration in a way that actually, presumably you, you now think it was right to pass over you for CEO those previous times or, or do you still feel a little bit of a niggle I, about that? I, I think it was right. I think it was right because I think I hadn't 
worked out. I mean, I, I think one of the key things that defines good leaders is they have a conscious point of view on what leadership is. It doesn't mean it has to be the same as my point of view, by the way. They could vigorously disagree with my point of view. The most important thing, I obviously would say the second most important thing is to agree with me, but the, but the, definitely the most important thing is to just have a point of view. And I think that I, I, I think I, in common with quite a lot of people, had seen uh, the various progressions of my career as to each next job being roughly the same as the one before, only with a bit more responsibility and a bit more money. But actually, when you get into real leadership positions, like a CEO position of a business, it is a completely different job. Uh, and I think I hadn't really gone, I hadn't got to that place in my own head at that I, point. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're talking about is interesting because one of the things I think that holds people back from wanting to be leaders and do leadership roles is, is wanting to be liked. And actually, the fact is, particularly when you're in a company where you get promoted up from the ranks, as it were, suddenly you're not one of the guys. You know, you can't all go to the pub together and bitch about the boss because that, that's you now, right? And, and it would be inappropriate for you to keep doing that about the next level up. There's a kind of separation. It's Being a leader is kind of slightly lonely, right? I think leadership can be lonely. I don't think it necessarily... I mean, it's hard. I think generalisations are different people's experiences of leadership and anything else frankly are quite difficult to generalize about but i think it can be lonely and i certainly have, have found it lonely at times and i think your point about being liked is an interesting one i mean it's the, cla- the, the the military example is the classic isn't it you know the 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 private who suddenly gets made the lance corporal or something mm. and suddenly he's got to tell the tell the guys what to do and in fact there's there's lots of anecdotes of people n- deliberately not taking promotions for exactly that reason because they want to stay as part of the gang but but i think that it I agree with you totally in the sense that being liked isn't necess- it isn't necessary to be liked to be a good leader. I mean, by the way, it is possible to be a good leader and be liked. I mean, they're not they're not mutually exclusive. But but if you think about my definition of leadership, being liked isn't isn't in there as a, as a prerequisite. I just think when I've thought about this subject, like I used to lead a team and I which I know I've now sort of moved sideways out of that. A lot of it is a bit like it reminds me about books on parenting in a way, right? About wanting to be like your kid's friend. And actually, that's Mm. not what they need. They need a parent. Mm. And there's a sort of similar thing with leadership where you need people to respect you and like you. But actually, people like the reassurance of a hierarchy some of the time. They want you talk in the book about the fact that people would come and sort of dump their problems on you Mm. on a Friday afternoon and then go off to the pub, happy in the knowledge that someone else had shared it. And there is a kind of sense that actually people... A lot of people like the security of having a, a leader. That's what it is. It is a slightly parental kind of figure. That will come to the parent parental points. I think that is an an interesting uh, analogy to explore in terms of the pros and cons. I think for sure people want people want to have good leaders, uh, and and we can have you know again lots of different conversations about what how you might define a good leader. But my attempt at that is particularly in a particularly in a, a career sense i mean this is leadership exists in lots of other fields as well but in a career sense i think one way of thinking about a good leader is somebody who is are you good for the careers of the people that work for you and i think most people want to most people want to have successful careers um most people want to have, and, and that doesn't mean that they 
that doesn't mean necessarily that for most people career is a be-all and end-all, but for, if I have to spend five days a week or even three days a week, whatever, nine till five, you know, I want to, I want that to be a successful experience for me. And that, by the way, that can be very individual and very different. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, I quite like that as a question because you can make that mean lots of different things for yourself. But I think a successful leader... A great measure is if you're good for the careers that work for you, careers for the people that work for you, you, you by definition are doing a lot of things right. Yeah. You, you both understand them individually, so there's a micro element to it. But I think also for you to be good for somebody's career, you also have to be doing a lot of macro things right. You know, you have to be running a successful team or a successful organisation. So uh, I, I quite like that as a measure. And, I, and, and again, within that, there's nothing about being being liked. I do think respect is important. I, I think that's a that is a prerequisite, but that's a completely different point. I think the parental thing is interesting, and I think there are some analogies with parenting. But at the same time, I certainly think in today's society—not just business, but society—I think our relationship with uh, with authority is very different to what it was maybe even ten years ago, mm. certainly than it was twenty or thirty years ago. And a lot of organisations did. The hierarchies in organisations were quite parental in yeah. that sense. And I think there's a lot of class, class aspects in there as well. I think the problem with the parental analogy is you end up with de- what I call dependent cultures. Right. So this is a big theme about the book, about the kind of fact that if you end up in a ma- an overly rigid management style, everybody skulks around desperately not taking any decisions on their own behalf because they they know they could be countermanded or they're going to get in trouble for having overstepped the mark, which leads to... the I've, I've worked in an organisation like this, a very dysfunctional organisation where everything comes down to the say of one person and that person can't be everywhere at all times. So everyone else functionally might as well not be there the rest of the time because they're all waiting on one person's sign-off, which I, I'm sure advertising... You talk about the kind of Don Draper model, the kind yeah. of... Yeah, um, creative director kind of being the kind of god must be prone to that too. Oh, I mean that—that—that's where I, I've worked in advertising agencies. Yeah. I mean, th- those are the environments I spent a lot of my career in. Yeah, I—I I, I think that uh, what, in fact, to, to go back to this this sort of uh, this this tipping point moment for, for me personally, when I became the CEO, uh, finally get put in charge of this crappy business. Um, one of the things I was. I was determined, and it, I, I'm saying I, but actually it was we because it was a leadership team at that point. We were determined to be really quite iconoclastic um, and pretty well uh, set about smashing up all of the things within the organisation and within the culture that we felt represented that style of what I call the Caesars in the, in, in the book, the people in the, uh, the the corner offices with the white leather sofas and the closed doors, and removing everything that showed signs of that. And so that's a phys- that was physical changes to the environment, that was cultural changes, that was process changes to get rid of that. And the, the point is exactly as you describe it. I think if you have an organisation where you have have these uh these 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 don draper these caesar type figures and by the way they exist in all sorts of organizations Mm. i mean you're talking about a very different organization to an advertising agency the problem is is within within particularly people-based businesses but again i don't think i think many many types of organizations if you have you know the organizations are full of ambitious bright um often quite well-paid people all of whom want to get on with their careers and yet if you have this kind of parental culture it does say to those people do you know what it really doesn't matter what you think or what you say only one person's opinion matters Uh, and not only is that deeply frustrating and dysfunctional to work within um as you mentioned my argument is actually 
you fail to unlock the potential of all those p- other people in that organization. And the real challenge for leader is, my analogy is about height. You know, some leaders, you feel like they make everybody feel like they're a foot shorter than they actually are. And actually, great leaders, you want them all to, you want everybody to feel like they're two foot taller than they actually are. That, you know, that's what a leader needs to do. A leader needs to create an environment for their team to outperform. And I don't think you can do that if you have a parent-child approach. But do you then need to have an acceptance that some people will do things differently to the way you would have done them? And I think that's one of the things that is difficult for leaders to give up is that particularly as you get more and more authority over time, you begin to think your way is the right way and you want things done your way. And, and like you kind of get into a kind of comfort zone at work. And actually, it's very hard to then say, I wouldn't have done it like that, but let's find out if that's a legitimate way to do it. Right. Because I think that relies behind a lot of Caesar as you, you talk about these Caesars, you know, they just want things their way and they're not open to the idea that anyone else might have a kind of good idea. I, I think that is exactly the cha- that is exactly the leader's challenge. My argument is exactly that to be an effective leader, you have to create an environment for it, people to perform at their best. And them performing at their best is not trying to copy you. Let's talk about it the, from the other way around yeah. of managing up. What do you do if you have one of those leaders who is a Caesar, like what, who just wants things done their way? How do you functionally cope with that and sort of say, hey, I know that, you know, this isn't the way you would have done it, but this is, well, let's, let's try it. You know, you need to have a bit more kind of, you know, investment in your team to have a bit more respect for them. I think, well, it, it's a question I get asked a lot. And, and at the end of the day, I don't think there's any really simple answers right. to that. Um, I, I think I would encourage people... Um, to be brave and be bold and first of all to have those conversations and I don't think and again again hard to generalize I don't think you have to necessarily approach those kind of difficult conversations with your with your bosses and we've all got bosses you know I've got bosses I don't think you have to approach that in a you know you're wrong I'm right way Mm. but I do think that that even if people do have those kind of management styles that, that I'm saying that I'm not sure that's necessarily that helpful it doesn't mean that those people are bad people it doesn't mean that those people don't you know, they will tell themselves they do want to hear everybody's like nobody ever says mm. I'm right, you're all wrong, only do it my way. So the first thing is to is to have the courage to go and have those conversations, to go and have conversations about I don't I you know, he he is something I think, he is my ideas, he is my suggestions. So the first thing I think is is to push and try. I mean there isn't a way around that. Mm-hmm. That all said, I've also always thought that Today, more than ever, people have choices. And at the end of the day, if you're in, if you're in an environment in an organisation that you don't think you're enjoying or you're not getting what you need out of that organisation and you do feel like you've genuinely tried to get those questions answered, at the end of the day, the only answer is, is to go and work somewhere else. And I think that's the leader's challenge because people are making those choices all the time. And, and you as a leader, you have to make sure that you're creating an environment that people are choosing you. And, and, you know, increasingly, we, we're in a very fluid world now from an employment point of view. People want to have more uh, fluid careers. You know, a career looks is almost getting to a point where there's not a, a standard career anymore. You know, people have all sorts of different working patterns and amb- ambitions. And as a leader, you need to recognize that, that the more talented people are, the more choices they have. And you need them to choose you. It's not about you choosing them so much anymore. 
because you know they they're the one with the power the power and the choice in that sense mm. so you've got to create an environment where they're choosing you and at the end of the day if they feel like you're not good for their career they're going to go somewhere else okay next problem for the chris has leadership clinic <laughs> say you're a ceo or a senior leader what do you about about middle managers who are not quite up to it and therefore create do a lot of work busy work in order to camouflage the fact that none of the work is of any good quality because i think a lot of people will recognize that figure in the office too a lot of people recognise that figure. Is the, it just about getting rid of them? Because there is a very good bit in the book about the fact that people don't like the idea that sometimes actually things just work, don't work out and a bad individual can ruin a whole team. There's no question that a bad individual can ruin a whole team. I mean, my way, the, the, there's, the, there's the sort of the, the, the cliche about, you know, your, your greatest assets get in the lift at the end of the day. And my point is, yeah, that's definitely true. But so do some of your greatest liabilities. Uh, and you've got a you have a it is absolutely critical as a leader that you are clear what you are collectively trying to achieve. But it is also critical that the people that the individuals within that your direct reports and their direct reports and so on down, that they are clear what their part in that is. Mm. And that is partly their functional role, but that is also the cultural environment that they that they exist within. And we'll, we'll probably come on and talk about culture a little bit in a minute. Um, but, you know, I, I definitely think that leaders shouldn't be capricious. Leaders shouldn't just, you know, shoot from the hip. And, you know, you have to create an environment where people are very clear where they stand and very clear what is expected of them in, in all the ways mm. I've described. But at the end of the day, if people choose not to do that, then you have to, t- you have to remove those people from your teams. And in, and in fact, often the people that suffer most from the people you've described are not you as the leader. Mm. Often those people are very good at managing up. It's actually, you know, and you think, well, they seem kind of okay and they always smile at me and are nice to me when I see them in the lift. Actually, the people that, that suffer most from those individuals are the people around them. They're the ones that see somebody who takes the credit for their work. They're the ones that realise they're in at 8 a.m. and that person swans in at 10.30 and leaves at 4. They're the one, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And in actual fact, in my experience, they're the ones that are most happy when you solve that, whether that be because you have a difficult conversation with that person and they change their ways or raise their game or ultimately if that person is leaves the company. I do think it came back to something you say early on in the book about a leader should try and be connected to you know their shop floor, however you want to, you know, mm. whatever the version of that is in their business, because those are the people who will have, the, you know, they will have a completely different insight. And you're right, you know, those those people in middle management who are often very good at looking, you know, upwards, because that's the person they know, you know, they're very, yeah, that's the person they know they've got to, you know, they've got to impress. And actually, it comes at the expense of being a, a team player to everybody else. I also wonder if sometimes those people aren't happier themselves out of that environment where people are failing. I, I think that that is, I think that that is, that is true. Yes. And it's, it, what what we've all seen at different times is there's, I think there's, you know, we talk about people who are talented or, you know, we talk about talent and therefore by implication there's some people that aren't, and you know, uh, which we tend not to talk about as much. And I actually don't think that, generally I don't think that's true. I think that you can put the same person, me or you or anybody else, into different environments and we might flourish in one environment and we might struggle in another environment. And really that is another way of looking at the leader's challenge because the leader is the person that creates that environment. And that's the, that is that is culture, and there's a lot of cynicism around culture. Uh, but the reason that we're cynical about the word culture is because it's used and abused. You know, because organisations talk about what they'd like to be. You know, the values that they carve into reception that that the leadership industrial complex tells them to do. But their their actual reality of their organisation bears 
there's no relation to it. And, and, and that's why people are cynical, because the gap between what they say and what they do is so big. If you align those two, if you, if you create a culture, you know, the cul- culture is the environment the leader creates in order for their teams to outperform. Right. And actually, weirdly, when you're managing very high performing individuals, actually dealing with failure is often harder for them. If someone has had a career where they've just excelled at every single thing, then actually the, the getting into that team where they do, where it doesn't work, it's not working, they can't do it, is is a new and kind of freakish experience for them. And they may be very reluctant to kind of concede to that, right? Well, I think we, we, we're definitely, most of us are reluctant to concede yeah. to that. And I, and I don't think it's inevitable. But I mean, I don't think... This isn't a binary situation. I mean, all, all of us in all of our lives go through all sorts, you know, work or the context we're talking about now, your time in a particular team, whether it be a sports team or work or whatever. That's only part of your life. You know, there's a whole and there's a whole load of other things that go on in all of our lives that we can't separate from how we are and how we feel when we're, when we're at work. And so all of us go through ups and downs and difficult times and happy times. And, and it's hard. To, you know, we talk about work life, but in reality, it's, it's one it's all as a, it's all you can't really separate them and and i think that that a good leader creates a team environment that understands that you know you definitely can't be capricious you definitely got to create an environment where we understand that that we all have the you know we all share the human condition and its frailties and all that that comes with it um what i'm really talking about when we talk about people that are you know, that, that let's say behave badly within organisations. I think that is a different thing. That isn't somebody just having a bad month. Mm. That's somebody who fundamentally exhibits behaviours that you as a leader and you, frankly, as a collective team, consider to be beyond the pale. And if that person re- re- repeatedly refuses, despite conversations to change that, then that person has to leave the team for the good of the team. And I think that's critical. Right. I think that comes back to something else that you say in the book about kind of the bad managers perpetuate the status quo because it's Mm. the line of least resistance. And there's this Colin Powell's 40-70 rule, right, which I initially thought, does Colin Powell not understand percentages? (laughs) But it turns out, no, you have to take a list. You shouldn't take a decision until you know, you you think you've got a 40% chance of getting it right, right? But if if you get to the stage where you think you've got more than 70% of the knowledge that you need, you've waited too long. Correct. So you have to embrace this idea that sometimes you're going to get things wrong because otherwise you know you would live in an incredibly conservative ass covering kind of situation right when there's a huge huge amount of leadership that happens where just people would rather not make a mistake than try to do something new that i think that you you asked me right at the start why is it difficult why is leadership difficult and and the 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 best way to think about that is in terms of decision making because the way you actually get from a defined point in the present to a different point in the future is you have to travel between those two points and what does that really mean that means taking a series of decisions that is just decisions 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 some big some you don't even notice some small some you get right some you get wrong the most debilitating thing for a leader and a leadership team is the inability to make decisions and i've sat in leadership teams and i'm sure many of the people listening to this probably are right now part of teams where they meet every week and they discuss the same thing every week and they just never come to a decision on it and there's nothing more debilitating for a, for an individual or a team or a however big that team is, than the belief that they are unable to make or unwilling to make decisions. 
And I think one of the reasons that people struggle with decision making is exactly to Colin Powell's point, which is they hope that if they just give it an extra week or an extra day or they go and get an extra bit of data or they do a bit of research or they ask, you know, their partner or whatever it is, mm. that in some way some sudden um, resolution will arrive, which will make everything clear. And that just, if that never happens. And in fact, I think that if... If it is absolutely 100% clear what you should do, it's not a decision because why wouldn't you right, do why that? Right, why are they paying decisions you any money only, to take it? Decisions yeah. only exist when there's ambiguity. And and so I think as a leader, you have to reframe. And the reason people don't people, people wait is because they fear failure. They fear getting it wrong. And I think what Colin Powell is saying is he's saying accept that you're going to get some of these decisions wrong. He's saying, if you're being geeky and mathematical about it, Three out of ten are likely to be wrong. Yeah. But he's saying you have to trade that off about and about the need to keep making decisions. It is fear not making decisions more than fear getting some of them wrong. Because because what is true is, and we see it all the time, is waiting longer actually in reality normally often doesn't make it any more likely that you are going but to But I think there's also a lack of understanding that that is a decision in itself. It's that exactly delay right. is a decision. You have yes. taken a decision. Yes. And actually, that might very well have negative consequences yes. of its own. Kind I think of, it's OK, by the way, if you conscious, if you say there's some really good reasons why we're going to wait, then that's a conscious, that is a conscious decision. Um, I think the problem is a lot of times you write it a decision, but it doesn't look like a decision. It just looks like dithering. Well, I think funny enough, it made me think about um, foreign policy and, war, and, going to, and going to war. And actually, you as a leader, weirdly having had this conversation with a former prime minister about the fact that if you make a decision to go to war then everybody can have an opinion on that if you make the decision not to go to war terrible things i mean i'm talking about the syria conflict yep. here terrible things may very well result from that but you will those will not be attributed to you and your lack of decision right so there is this well, weird you don't thing have a chilco inquiry for not doing anything right but and and actually and i think that's a really really important point because actually sometimes maybe we should have but sometimes we should have inquiries about why we didn't do things, but it virtually never happens. There's only action that that creates reaction in that. Yeah. Sense. So the easiest thing is always to do to do nothing, and then you you can hold your hands up. A terrible thing happened, but you weren't you weren't there. It wasn't your fault. Let's come. Let's let's talk about cultural problems, but we have to take a quick break. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. 
Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code SQUARED, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code SQUARED to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. I'm back with Chris Hurst, Global CEO for Havas Creative Network and author of No Bullshit Leadership. Um, You talk in the book about culture. I think you have a very funny thing about the fact that Enron, the notoriously failed uh, financial services company, had its, you know, its its buzzwords were kind of integrity, you know, leadership, definitely not embezzling stuff. Um, But actually... I think it's funny because we have this discussion in news journalism all the time about when people sort of say uh, a compliment, you know, or, they, or say they are a thing that no one would ever describe themselves as the opposite, right? So yes. no one ever, exactly. no one ever, you know, says, oh, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I, you know, I pride myself on my honesty. No one ever would come out and say, <laughs> I think it was I pride myself on my dishonesty. Yes. So the same thing happens in those buzzwords, right? Is that everybody wants to be an innovator? And I think one of the things you said in the book, which I think is, 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 is most important for people to hear, is that some people are so hung up on uniqueness. Um, are, but it is okay to run a company that does a very, what's it, the phrase, does a common, a common thing, thing right, better, better than everybody than, else. Right. I, well, I think that's true of most companies. I, I genuinely do. If I mean, by most, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to think of ones that aren't. On a, really, it's hard to think of companies that are, that organisations that are genuinely doing something that is unique. I'm sure somebody listening will. But even in innovators that. then end up making a new market for themselves, right? Because yes. the classic example would be something like Apple inventing, you know, the iPad, a completely new mm. genre of product, mm. and well now they're now a maker of tablets competing with lots of other people. So yes. even if you do make that, but you get a kind of six months to a year to enjoy your lordly innovation if it's a good innovation and in, and in actual fact it. i mean that's an example of where that was successful of course there's also an equal um if not larger list of organizations that where the people that are second or third actually end up being the most successful because the first one you know somebody goes right well, google that's was a pretty not good idea that's engine. exactly was not the first we're not using engine. ask jeeves yeah. anymore sadly or yes. altavista yeah so i think that back to the leadership industrial complex one of the one of the real so, real sort of sources of snake oil and frankly bullshit that leaders are sold is this idea around visions and purposes and all these kind of things and i'm not saying that those things aren't important they are important but so often leaders are told that those things have to be unbelievably insightful unbelievably unique unbelievably differentiated and in fact so high is often the bar is set so high that i've i have been in leadership teams where they've never even got beyond trying to answer that question And I'm saying, do you know what? It's an important question, but it's not a difficult question. And in fact, it doesn't even necessarily have to be honed down to the sharpest point. It can be it can be a direction, not a point. Because the really difficult thing is the getting between the two is the doing it. Okay, let's go back to the Chris S. Leadership Clinic. How do we make meetings not awful? Uh, And meetings are awful, Mm -hmm. aren't they? Mostly. I think there's 
there's a there's a lot of quite good literature. Not that I read a lot of business books, but there is quite a lot of sensible stuff written about meetings. So again, I don't have any unique ideas about this, but I think the first thing with a with a meeting is somebody has to be in charge. Yeah, I know that's really obvious, but the, the, I'm, what I'm going to say now is incredibly obvious. Somebody has to be in charge. You have to turn up on time. And you have to finish it on time. You have to have an agenda. If anything, finish it a bit earlier than. There's everyone. nothing more. I mean, no even better. Even <laughs> be, nobody ever said this meeting is um, too short. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in fact, we we but but it's a, it's a, it seems like a, such a kind of like trivial point. But but it, meetings are a defining characteristic of many organisations. And we, again, we're not just talking about private sector. We're talking public sector. We're talking sports teams. They have meetings as well. And they are defining characteristics of a lot of organisations, and mostly they're run really badly. And and a key a key a thing we did at a pre, uh, we did at a previous organisation was we we tried to address this. And one of the things we did was we put in every meeting room we put one of the chairs in the meeting room. We made a red chair, just one red chair. And the point of that was to say that whoever's meeting it is sits in the red chair. So as, as much as anything, it's a reminder that any time anybody walks into that room, hang on a minute somebody's supposed to be in charge here who whose meeting is this they said in the chair and they chair literally chair that meeting now that doesn't always have to be the most senior person in the room mm. I mean, lots of meetings where there's all sorts of mixes of people um i think the other thing i'd say about meetings is that person who's sitting in that chair they they need to literally chair the meeting not be the meeting I think quite a lot of people who uh, whose meeting is are, 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 see themselves as the meeting. So they write the agenda, they talk for most of the time, they finish. The, the person in that chair chairs the meeting. And, and, and we talk about culture and, and I think that person doesn't just need to be sitting and making sure that we've got to agenda point three in time. They need to be sitting around the table and saying, why does that person in the, on the left, the end on the left, why haven't they spoken for 30 minutes? You know, wh- wh- why is it that that person isn't contributing to the meeting? So it's their, their job isn't just to hit the agenda points. Their job is to see that meeting as a, as a mini team mm. and make sure that everybody is contributing. Now, it might be because they haven't got anything to add. But if you don't check in, you don't know. And I think it's really important that they are conscious of the environment as well as the agenda. OK, next one is how do you deal with seating plans? I have rearranged the seating plan a couple of times in companies that I've worked with. And it was honestly unbelievably stressful which I think you acknowledge in the book that people get really very very tense about the idea that they might not sit in their place I think it's kind of like a little territorial kind of thing going on so I love a seating plan uh, and in fact that sounds such a boring that everybody switches off that, that sounds such a boring no, thing to no, say no, but, no, but, but, but when we, we talk about uh, ch- uh, leadership is about change it's about getting from A to B and a lot of that change in most organisations is, is at least partly, if often, mostly about cultural change. And a reasonable question is to say, OK, right, we understand it's cultural change, but, but how on earth do I actually do that? And I think culture, you have to think of culture as we think of it as this soft, squishy thing often, like, OK, we've got a great culture because we have Pilates at lunchtime and free fruit. And my argument is that isn't culture at all. Culture, as I said earlier, is the, is, is the environment leader creates for their team to succeed and is actually, think of it like concrete. And when concrete is wet, you pour the concrete into the mould, OK, and you can squiggle on it and stick your fingers in it and things like that when it's wet. But it, over time, it sets. And that's what culture is like. And if you then want to change that culture, you've got to smash it. And the way you, the way you, you have to smash it before you can reset it. And therefore, you have to think to yourself as a leader, how do I not just say things and behave in a different way, but how do I, how do I use the environment we're within to create a different culture? And the seating plans 
are a really interesting way to understand a culture in an organization. So we talked earlier about the Don Drapers. If we summon up Don Draper in our head, we summon up Don Draper in an office, right? We summon up his environment and he's got a big office, hasn't he, and a drinks cabinet and a a sofa sofa, and a secretary who sits outside the door and all those kind of things. And that says something about his status and his role in that, uh, his role and the culture as well. And one of the ways you change a culture is you change the physical environment of the organization. Seating plans are a, are a really powerful way of doing that. So, you know, whether that be you, you knock all the offices down or whether you build some office, you know, change it, you know, change it to how it is. If you all sit in departments, don't sit in departments, sit in client teams. You know, you know um, just ch- change the way you use the environment, but do it in a way that is coherent with the story you're telling people. I mean, the critical thing with changing culture is if you just do things as a leader arbitrarily and people just go, I, I hate having to go and sit next to these new people because mm. I can't, I, I like my old friends. People still aren't going to be necessarily happy about it. But the critical thing is you explain to them why you're doing what you're doing. And you then follow, you know, you follow that through with actions, one of which is changing the environment within the organisation and seeing plans are a powerful way of doing it. Yeah, I think journalism has been through a big kind of shift on this because over the last 10, 15 years, it's tried to integrate digital operations and old legacy print operations, right? Classic example. And actually saying most of those cases have involved people saying, well, actually, you know what, there isn't a prestigious print product and then this thing called the internet which yep. is just full of cat gifts and porn actually we're going to try and sell digital subscriptions we're going to say that our digital offering is just as pretty now that's that's worth paying for too and therefore you need to integrate those teams but that, that i i can't think of a newspaper that i know people who worked in where that hasn't been a very angsty process well, it would have been an enormous thing, i suppose because I, I mean i've never worked in a newspaper but i presume that that it started off where you had the the prestigious you know the real yeah, <laughs> you know the real felt, journalist think, bit people, yeah. okay and then you had the digital department Who somewhere were often down there younger and yeah, less well paid yeah, as well and, so that adds and in a, presumably a crappy bit of the building yeah. and then suddenly and over time that grows and develops and becomes more important and then you suddenly get to a point where you think oh actually I, they they can't just be all 22 year olds who sit in the crappiest bit of the building actually this is suddenly going to be our future so how do but but i need the other piece as well so it's not an and or it's how do i create a new cultural environment that is a big strategic challenge a lot of organizations face but what people tend not to write about in leadership books is you know what one of the ways you need to do that is address physically where people sit how people sit and how they interact with each other okay we haven't got very much time so i want to ask you some quick fire questions um we've talked a lot about bad leaders can you point to me to any good leaders? So let's let's start with politics first. Like, where would people find evidence of people having made good leadership decisions in politics, business, and sports? So let's do politics first. Wow, um, good leaders in politics. Silence. Well, I think current politics it's hard to it's look hard. around because there is a lot of exactly what you describe. I think Brexit is the classic I, example of I'll people not wanting to make a choice between any of the available options, right? Because none of them are perfect. So let's not pick I, any of them. I, I'll give you an example of, of a which, which, in a roundabout way, might answer your question. I, I read an anecdote about Margaret Thatcher towards the end of her life, and one of her former ministers went went to see her she lived i think she was lived in a hotel or something i think when she was towards the end of life anyway anyway wherever wherever it was and he went to visit her and he said whenever i would go and see her she'd always despite the fact that by this point she was very old and very frail she'd always ask how the polls 
how the polls were looking. Okay, and he said to her uh, this one of these last visits. He said, "Well, actually, you know, actually, Margaret, you know, they're 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 not looking great. We're we're four points behind or something in the polls." And she said to him, uh, "You know what? That's not far enough behind at this point because if we want to get stuff done, we're gonna, you know, we have to go through a period of that being unpopular. And if we believe, I mean, it's not a really a particular point. If we believe that we're right." we will see the benefit of that in the polls by the time the next election comes around. And I think there's an interesting debate about spending and saving political capital. You know, and I think that great political leaders are prepared to spend their political capital to get stuff done. You know, oh, I get, think it's really interesting and, when you look at anything like minimum wage, right, now completely accepted as being a kind of just obvious yeah, common yeah. sense. Of course you'd have a floor on the hourly mm-hmm. wage for people. Viciously resisted at the time, arguments made that it would lead to, to job losses. Yeah. The creation of the NHS, you know, I can't remember, I think it was um, Nye Beverly, so we had to stuff the doctor's mouths with gold because right. there, was a, there was a big downside yeah. Ironically, to Ironically, the, the BMA here and now, yeah, we're actually yeah. firmly against it. Yeah, uh, exactly. And then, as you say, there has to be a point where you do something, you think, well, in the short term, maybe there will be unpopularity, but actually we think it will, will pay off. And again, it comes back to your point. Sport, I guess, is slightly easier. You've got an introduction in the book from Sir Clive Woodward. So I think a great, you know, you know, it's, it's I mean, we're, we're talking, what is it, it's Wednesday today, three days after the two greatest sports contests that ever happened in this country, probably in the cricket final and the and the, and so the Wimbledon is, final. Yeah, Federer versus uh, Federer Djokovic. Uh, and uh, and I, I think and England winning on the last and, ball against I mean, the uh, last ball of the last ball of the extra time the was super like, over was like which winning we just the made up. game on on corners effectively is how, is how it was decided. But. But I think that what was astonishing to me about both of those was the way that the losers um, carried themselves. Federer, the competitiveness and ability to perform under pressure for such a long period of time and then to lose that game and to be able to deal with that in such a gracious way. And the same with Kane Williamson, the, the captain, for those that don't know, of the New Zealand cricket team. I mean, they lost... In the way they lost that game would, would would break a normal person. And again, his ability to to a create an environment that allowed his team to perform at such an astonishingly high level over such a long period of time, and yet be able to deal with the uh, deal in such a positive, inspirational, frankly, way, I think is there's a lesson for us all. There we go. Well, that is it. The book is No Bullshit Leadership and joining me has been Chris Hurst. Thank you. Thank you.